Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and I would like to begin by acknowledging the Awabakal people on whose unceded lands I'm broadcasting today and to extend my respect to elders past and present. And I'll just uh, sneak in a little cheeky, uh, oh yes. Ooh, don't know if you can see it there, but oh yes. <laughs> Uh, absolutely needed. Okay, today's guest, uh, Esther Ottaway, is an award-winning Australian poet. She's been published widely over 20 years in literary journals around the world, uh, including Rattle in the US, leading newspapers, including the Australian, the Canberra Times, anthologies, um, notably the acclaimed 30 Australian Poets, which was published by UQP. And in 2020, Esther was shortlisted for the Montreal International and Bridgeport Poetry Prizes. Uh, her awards include fellowship at Varuna, um, at the Writers' House, and as well as grants for art practices from the Australia Council, Sydney Meyer Foundation, Arts Tasmania and Regional Arts. A former board member of Island Magazine, Esther has written commissioned performance poetry works for the stage uh, for at the Adelaide Cabaret Festival and Tasmania's Festival of Voices and worked collaboratively with artists in other forms, including visual and fiber arts. And works from her book, Blood Universe, Poems on Pregnancy, anthologized in national and international collections on parenthood, are recognized as an important exploration of women's experience uh, and also have been listed as further reading on 60 classic Australia poems set to music for the Tasmania Symphony Orchestra and also featured on ABC Radio National. And we are here to talk about uh, Esther's fantastic new book. I'm going to hold it up, but my background makes everything disappear, <laughs> but I'll hold it up anyway. Um, she doesn't seem autistic with this fantastic Barbie cover. How timely is that? I'm sure you've heard that before. Um, so congratulations on the new book, Esther, and welcome. Thanks so much. It's really lovely to be with you. Yeah. So I, I think we'll just get straight into it and I'll get you to open the show with with a poem. Um, if you want to, the, the one that actually opens the book as well, which uh, is, you know, in many ways quite wry, <laughs> which is uh, after writing a book on female autism, I decided to bury it, which of course you didn't, but go for it. <laughs> I didn't, but I did have uh, uh, many moments when I second guessed what I was doing in writing this book because it is very personal and it exposes the side of my life that mm -hmm. hasn't been seen or hasn't been talked about. So after writing a book on female autism, I decide to bury it. Go on with that public, Esther, curated pretense. To be and not to be, that is Australian. What good are these chalk traces around spent victims? Why lift the sheet on myself, fatigued, confounded? I know what I'd be next, that bleating woman, the car alarm that barely registers. Truth pregnant, I laboured. Her name is repercussions. My fear that this child kicks, draws breath to cry. Mm. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, it's just a, it's a really, um, I think it's indicatively powerful way to begin the book. And it really immerses us directly in that, um, you know, an interesting kind of duality that occurs all throughout it, which is this notion of, you know, I guess, 
in many ways, this book is is something that draws the reader in, you know, becomes instead of becoming uh, the secret shame and actually becomes a, a way to kind of bring people together, right, and, and open out um, something that was private, perhaps, into something that is really quite uh, powerfully cohesive and universal. Um, but tell me a little bit about, I guess, that that whole notion of wanting to bury, wanting to mask, wanting to, you know, that duality between masking, pretending to not be something and, and you know, what the impact of, of exposing that has been for you and in the way in which it's been received. I know that's a multiple question, but see how you go. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. So, yes, yeah, so I came to understand that I was autistic through a long diagnostic process with my own daughter. Mm. So she's now 20. So she's in a generation where um, it was still a bit lagging. It took till she was 15 to get her diagnosed. But in her, my kids' generation, our kids' generation, these concepts are being talked about, neurodiversity, having issues on the spectrum. Um, I'm the previous generation, Generation X, and for us disability was not a thing and it was um, a weakness and a failure in my generation if you're a disabled person. Um, it was power women. It was sort of, you know, soldiering on. And so, um, and especially if you didn't have a diagnosis for the things which affected you. So I, um, as a young person, had all the same struggles that my daughter has in terms of sensory processing, overwhelm and Emotional regulation was very hard and um, memory issues to do with ADHD, even though I was highly intelligent. And so there was this weird dichotomy where I was smart and I could do certain things and I could learn certain things and, and that was evident at school. But at the same time, just the sensory and the social environment of school left me shattered. And so that continued then into work and I was only ever able to work part-time um, and so at last, when my daughter was diagnosed, I have a language for the things that have affected me. Um, but I do carry a lot of internalised shame around those things and I'm unpacking that in recent years. And I think that was my driver to write She Doesn't Seem Autistic um, because I looked at myself and realised how much of society's messages I had internalised and, and carry it in terms of being a failure and not strong enough and not strong-willed enough. You know, these were the messages. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's, I guess the book represents a lovely personal growth for me in terms of acknowledging that, in fact, I was incredibly strong. I was immensely strong to get through those situations unsupported. Um, and now I'm able to, to name these things. And being a poet, um, I, I write about things that's my service to the world, so I really wanted to bring these stories out for other women. Yeah, wonderful. And, and you know, as I mentioned in my review, this um, is such a lovely combination between, you know, the artistic aspect of the work, really how it it, it beautifully unfolds in, in, you know, really a way that is, in fact, poetic, but also informative. And, you know, the whole way in which you structured that book uh, with the co-conditions, for example. So talk to me a little bit about the structuring and how you came up with that um, really quite interesting um, and unique way of, of pulling that book together. Yeah, thanks, Maggie. And, and thank you for writing that beautiful review on Compulsive Reader. Um, I really appreciate the, the work you and the care you put into analysing the work. Um, so it is, it's been described as almost like a dictionary, <laughs> even though it's a work of 
of art and artistic work. And I, I wrote the poems to give you the sensory and emotional experience of these conditions that occur with autism. So it's by no means a dry read, but I realised early on that I would need to articulate the names of these conditions um, that occur on the spectrum for most people because it's not, it's we know about autism, but we don't probably know a lot beyond that. And each autistic person has their own constellation of what, what are called the spectrum conditions. So that might be dysphoria, it might be ADHD, it might be anxiety, it might be um, rejection sensitivity, it might be um, fatigue, you know. So there are so many aspects that um, affect autistic people. It's not well known, but about 80% um, of autistic people have ADHD as well, which can make them at times very talkative. <laughs> so there's this interesting, you know, blend of, of what they call an uneven profile strengths, but also big deficits, which do impact the person's life. And so I hope um, the book is a real sort of a primer in terms of let's learn a little bit more about the autistic experience and about what that can involve. Yeah. And and I really feel like um, the other thing that you lean into, and, and you're quite explicit about this, is how it's different for females. Um, and really, you know, many ways, I guess, a lot of the preconceptions about what autism is or, you know, what being on the spectrum is, are driven by, you know, kind of a male um, lens. And, uh, you know, women in general, I think, regardless of where you sit on the spectrum, are taught to mask uh, and taught to, you know, behave in certain ways. I think it's very um, deep-seated. These things are changing, of course, which is wonderful in many ways, but it's also pretty, still pretty deep-seated. Uh, and it's hard as a mother to, you know, see these things being mirrored in your daughter as you have. Uh, suddenly you feel like, you know, there's a kind of empathy that you have to have for your daughter, but that it has in some way come back to yourself. Otherwise, it's not going to be effective, right? So there's a, a real circularity. But talk to me a little bit about that female aspect in the book. Yes, so we don't know what the incidence of autism is in women because the studies uh, that sort of defined autism were done on boys. Mm. And so the diagnostic criteria come from those studies and we still have those diagnostic criteria and they don't fit well onto girls, um, largely because, well, partly because what you said, uh, Maggie, about being socialised differently, boys and girls still are socialised very differently in many ways. And so girls are taught more to be polite, to be to sort of um, efface themselves, where boys can often be more direct and more blunt about their, you know, their um, emotional dysregulation, where girls will internalise that and become anxious and become depressed. Mm. Um, and this is all documented. There's fantastic work being done in Queensland um, Dr. Tony Atwood and his um, professional partner, um, Dr. Michelle Garnett, um, she is raising an autistic daughter and she's pioneering a lot of this research, bringing together research from around the world that's giving us a picture of autistic girls. And the picture is that we don't look like autistic boys, we don't present like autistic boys, we need better diagnostic criteria and um, we need professionals, I think, to realise how much they're biased towards boys. I felt like with the symptoms that my daughter had, she if she was a boy, would have been diagnosed at seven. You know, mm. she had very narrow interests. She just talked flat out about those interests. And there were many, many um, things which were just the same as a boy, but 
there's this reluctance around diagnosing girls with autism and I don't know why because we need access to services and we need to understand what's happening with ourselves. So I really wanted to put this book out there with this um, educational, I guess, awareness raising around girls and women but also for the autistic girls and women themselves to have a voice. Mm. Um, There has been no voice. It's amazing if you do a search on Amazon for books on women with autism get about 20 in the world (laughs) so it's just this incredible lack of representation um and so I you know I feel really proud of the work in that sense that it does Mm. give a voice to what it's like being a girl or woman with autism having these societal expectations that you're bright and bubbly and engaging you know that's a big pressure um and also then running into blocks when you come to diagnosis you find that you're gaslit you are dismissed your concerns are minimized yeah oh, well you're wearing makeup you can't possibly be you know as you yeah. address in the book absolutely yeah presents pretty well therefore there's no problem yeah 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 exactly exactly so I want to get you to read a little bit more and I think one of the poems that really addresses that and and does it with humor I mean does it you know of those 20 books you know I imagine uh not one of those is poetry so I you know I, I, I love I love the idea of what poetry can do and where it can go in in and to get kind of to bring us in really to 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 play with that empathy and bring the reader in in a way that maybe prose can't because it doesn't have to have a cause and effect. You know, it doesn't have to sit in a very linear way. Um, it, not that all prose has to do that, but I think poetry really works well with getting under the skin in, in this sense. So um, maybe small talk, 24? Yeah, of course. Small talk, sensory processing disorder. Hey, it's great to visit you. Ow, that light, the weird smell of your dinner. How have you been? Birds chirping, a bus, a barking dog, a screaming neighbourhood child, the kettle boiling, someone closing a door. What's been happening with you? The prickly texture of the couch, the washing machine running, the bitter taste of your brand of tea, the temperature normal for you that burns my mouth. Oh, you want to tell me about Lisa? Someone whippersnipping, the sour scent of grass, Oh, she had to go to the specialist, the dishwasher going, the electrical hum of the fridge, California, California, dreaming on a winter's day. Oh, really, an infection. The heater turning on, air blowing on me like fingernails down a blackboard, your kids chipping out the Lego box and squabbling, the itchy tag on my clothing, your text messages, my text messages, the washing machine deafening and vibrating into pain, and here's Beverly O'Connor with another ABC News update. Oh, do I look as though I'm miles away? Sorry. Wonderful. Thank you. And, and boy, do we feel that, right? So uh, again, I, I feel like you're you're able to create that beautiful kind of um, duality between, you know, what we might be seeing on the surface and what's going on all around that, that you know, that neurotypical person might not pick up on, but also, you know, to, to bring us into this moment of perception, um, just, you know, really wonderfully done and, and kind of funny in its way too. Yeah, there's quite a few, I think, funny moments in this book, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it, um, that sort of helps with understanding the messages and understanding the experience, I think. It's not a one-dimensional experience having autism. It's very different, but it's, and it's very complex. And I feel like, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book was I got to about age 40 and I got really tired of trying to answer the question, how are you? Yeah. <laughs> 
Because how I am is so complex and it takes an 84-page book to give an answer to how I am. You know, I'm such a mix of struggles and also strengths. Yeah. 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 So I hope I hope the poems give that. Give that they story. do. And, and, you know, and you might not want to go through those struggles and strengths, even if you, you know, at the time, like in, well, in a particular right. situation, and, you know, where, right? There is no social context in which I could say, actually, you know, these are the 20 things that affect me on a daily basis and I've had to negotiate with them just to get out of the house. You know, you can't, you can't do that in many social settings. But what that means is for women and girls, their experience gets constantly denied because there's no one to reflect back to them. Hey, this is happening for you. I understand that's happening for you. Let's talk about how we can modify things. You know, there, there just isn't that. And so I hope the poems are, you know, are validating of that. Yeah, yeah, wonderful, wonderful. So another theme that goes through all of the book um, is animals. There's all sorts of animals. Um, talk to me firstly a little bit about why and how those work through the text. Yes, I have got quite a few animals. I've got a seahorse who pops up a few times and I've got a hermit crab and, you know, various things. Giraffe. Giraffe, the, the, the beauty of poetry is the metaphor, right? And so um, I really felt very free in writing about autism to use all sorts of metaphorical connections to help the reader understand the experience. And so when I use the giraffe, it's not just the giraffe running in a savanna, it's a little giraffe trying to learn to swim in a you know suburban swimming pool and failing. And so there's a kind of incongruity to what's happening to the animal. Um, and that that incongruity is just, it's how you grow up as an autistic person. You don't fit anywhere and nothing really suits, you know, your way of learning and being. And, um, so the animals, I kind of, I guess I veered away from human metaphors in some sense because I was looking to expand the way I expressed experience. Um, yeah, so, you know, great that those animals are there to, to kind of do that and they've made their way into the book. Yeah. For sure. So can I ask you to read one of, uh, like, maybe there is always a, a giraffe? That's 27. Yes. 27, thank you. There is always a giraffe, dyspraxia. Cool as a whale. Mrs. Hayden is stepping backwards through water, patient with this small giraffe who has failed at every sport, all neck and skittery hooves, large-eyed, patterned with shame. The giraffe goes down, commanding her eyes to snap open, kicking the way she's been taught, trying to blow the textbook bubbles, one, two, three, and turn her fine neck to gasp so loudly it hurts her ears, the air that saves her life for another moment. Again, with fight or flight desperation, again with Mrs. Hayden's voice in her head, straight legs, lift your tummy, and her own voice too, yelling at herself to do it, do it, until her legs burn, her nostrils choke. The certificate floats farther away than Africa and she knows she will die here now. Her ears awash with plug hole terror and a fury of incompetence pounding in her head like a hoofbeat. Wherever I am, there is always a giraffe asking if it's worse to drown or fail. Hmm. 
Thank you. That's so powerful to hear you read that. So even more powerful, I think, than than seeing it on the page. And it, it really struck me, not not just in that poem, but like throughout the book, that there is a, a an ever present, um, I guess, a kind of rage. Um, but that rage gives rise, I think, almost to a reclamation or a kind of power, um, as if you were taking these, you know, very clinical labels um, that are used as the subheadings and almost um, taking them back and saying, all right, let's, you know, let's lean into this, you know, let's take this back. Let's show you, you know, the, um, the human the side of this, the yeah. impact of that and what this feels like. Let's put you there. Yeah. Yep. Because I didn't find that in the literature. That's the thing, mm. you know, being a reader, I go to books when I want to find things out or the internet, obviously. And that it was, all very medicalized and almost no representation of what the real experience was like. And so um, I I just thought, well, I need to, I need to fix that. Yeah. Even the words, you know, the words themselves are quite, um, uh, you know, they, they, they're cold and they're quite uh, hard. Right. Dyspraxia. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and, the, and yet I'm sure you heard many of those words or those labels, right. People do. So it's really, it's really interesting how, you know, you, you use them in a way that, you know, that also leans into the sounds of them, into the structure, into the way that, you know, the the word and the empathetic depictions, uh, the metaphors, you know, come together in a poem. It's, again, it strikes me as almost a, um, a powerful uh, recasting. Yes, I hope so, because the, the other thing, and this is often the case with the portrayal of, portrayal of disabled people, is um, to be seen only as the label, really, only as the deficit. And we're actually very vibrantly alive people, you know, and so there are so many um, dimensions to having a disability. Yes, it's a huge, it has a huge impact on your life and what you're able to do in and the ways you're able to do it. But we're still, you know, I'm still so engaged in life and love learning as I go through my life and have so much to offer and that's true of all disabled people so there is a reclamation as you say in putting putting life and and pictures and sound and dialogue you know all these things around these terms to show you the the real person yeah yeah wonderful and of course their voices that need to be heard like they're part of the beautiful and you know and terrible and you know incredible um variety that makes up the human race so they're not voices that you know we can move forward without hearing they they have to be out there so um thank you for doing that and um the other thing that again i i, I love and and it really really strikes me about the book is how well you use you know, the poetic structures um, with form, with rhythm and and with structure and how you uh, create meaning in the book. Um, so one of the things uh, that you do throughout, as, as you know, is uh, is the villanelle. And you do it quite well and, and quite funnily. You know, you have your illanelle and, you know, your different uh, billanelle. Um, yes. So talk to me a little bit about that and about the structures and, you know, what, I guess, what it is about. I, I, I I know, but what it is about the villanelle in particular that that drew you, but also about the forms that you chose to work with. Yes, thank you. So I do like form. Um, I write, even when I write free verse, I'm very conscious of formal structures, and I I know there's a lot of iambic pentameter even in my free verse, right? So there's um, 
rhythm is a huge driver for me and I think a huge carrier of emotional impact and that's always what I'm looking for. So um, villanelles I think are incredible because they because of their repeated structure that they circle back and circle back and circle back and so that can um, serve as a vehicle to express some of the frustration right of living with a chronic um, condition that limits you and that mystifies you and confounds you here it is again and here it is again you know and so I I felt like the villanelles are, are kind of a spine in the book in terms of um the, the form carrying those feelings of constraint and you know boundaries that you don't particularly want to be there. Um, and I've I've used them in quite a few contexts. You know, as you said, there's so there's the illanel, which is about chronic illness. There's the billanel, which is about trying to pay bills when you're a disabled person and you can only work, you know, 12 hours a week. How how is that done? You know, so I explore, I explore that. Um, there are um and Yes, certainly formal elements in some of uh, the other poems. And I'm quite, I love having access to all those forms. I feel like that's my palette, you know. And so I can um, take each experience and then I really think hard about what is the right container, what is the right form to give you the embodiment of that experience. Mm. So, um, yeah, I've ended up with a huge variety um, of forms in the book, uh, sonnets and all sorts of but um yeah I really again it's a multifarious spectrum right it's got so many um dimensions and so many aspects and so I wanted diversity in in the way I told the story yeah and I and I think you know there it comes through that there is a meaning that arises that's not just semantic you know that comes out of the the rhythm or the way the words hit or you know uh the repetitions um yeah so it it, it it works for me. Um, can I can I get you to, to read uh, Illinel on fifty three? Yes. This is Illinel, and the subheading says: Due to many physical and mental health conditions, autistic people live much shorter lives. The tree grew tall, but failed to bloom. I hide it from you, cope on my own. My civil war will defeat me soon. The lifelong illness is autoimmune, bodily war in the first seed sown. The tree grew tall but failed to bloom. My friends are looking at Europe's moon. It hurts to walk from my car to my home. This private war will defeat me soon. Nobody knows I sleep past noon. My Western shame, the bludgers clone. The tree looks tall but cannot bloom. Termites chatter in every room. Too weak to go out, too tired for the phone. My daily war will exile me soon. I enjoy what I can, though futures loom. I'm a warming earth, a riven stone. The tree grew tall, but would not bloom. My civil war will release me soon. Thank you. And I, I feel like um, one of the things that happens is because there's a kind of jaunty quality 
um, in the the villanelle itself, um, it, it makes quite an interesting contrast to the intensity of what you're actually saying, which is, of course, um, anything but jaunty. So it's, um, it, again, you've got this interesting mask of the structure comparing with, you know, what is happening underneath. It's kind of multi-leveled. Great. Yeah, I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> yeah. So um, I guess I'd like to just hear a little bit about your thinking about the relationship between art and advocacy here. Um, I know you're doing a lot of work, a lot of collaboration with other artists like Andy Jackson and Kerry Shine. Um, some really interesting things coming out of that that I keep hearing about that are, you know, quite exciting, really, um, to think about, you know, what is this, how is this um, as an art form, but also how is it opening out, you know, our notions of, of safe spaces or, 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 you know, how we can engage with one another um, and who gets to, you know, who gets to be heard and how we can make sure, um, how the, the whole poetic and artistic community can make sure that we are getting this incredible, rich diversity of voices like yours. So just talk to me a little bit about that. Yes, it's an exciting time because I think we're really on the cusp of an era where we're going to hear from disabled voices. Um, mm -hmm. It's very, very new disability consciousness um, in the world and also in Australia. Um, Certainly, as I said, in my generation, hid your disabilities and you didn't speak about them and you didn't let them be visible to anyone um, and you didn't ask for any help. You know, so it was very isolating. Um, now what we're seeing is disabled people uh, mobilising more, um, forming associations that help them to lift their messages out into the world, um, asking for change. But, you know, it's incredibly, still incredibly behind in terms of where it is. Um, one of my friends through that uh, disability working group that I work with, Andy Jackson and Kerry Shine in, uh, it's a group of writers, Australian writers, and we're working on a disability anthology. And Robin M. Eames uh, was commenting on what uh, they need as a person in a wheelchair. And I thought, okay, it'll be, you know, it's special access to certain events or something. And they said, no, we just need crossings at the street curb so that I can get my chair across the street. And, you know, and I, it's shocking how little is provided for a disabled person mm. even now. And so there's so much work to do in terms of raising the fact that we, we're one-fifth actually of society, 20% of people have a disability. Uh, and yet there's this been this very um, entrenched uh, damping down, you know, of our needs and our differences. And so it is exciting to be working with writers. Um, I worked with about 22, 24 um, poets and writers in that group for the last year and to see the vibrance of their work and their advocacy is, um, yeah, really incredible and inspiring. And, and I was so pleased to see Andy Jackson um, win the Prime Minister's Literary Award this yes. year, very deservedly yes. for his work, but also as a representative of the disability arts sector. Yeah. And, and I think just allowing the general populace to, you know, broaden the notion of, you know, what it what it means to have a voice in this world and, and you know, how we have to make safe spaces and how we have to enable. And, and just even thinking outside that kind of, uh, you know, binary box, if you like, of, you know, it, it, 
even those of us who may not be dealing with, I, I guess, an overt disability, um, uh, who are able to participate in, you know, without having to think about all the things that need to be thought about. You know, we've got children who are. Yeah. <laughs> um, we yeah. have friends who are. We have colleagues who are. Like, there's nobody who can go, well, it doesn't affect me. All right, because yes, absolutely. We're all this connected. Is what I find with autism, you know, everyone, almost everyone, has a family member or a close friend with children with autism. Um, it's about one in thirty-six children now. So, um, having said that, I think it was always there. Um, I can see it back to my great grandfather and great aunt um, through my family, through the women and also the men. Um, so it, it's so overdue. This sort of, as you say. Um, consciousness that we all need to be included and that might need flexibility and you know different ways of thinking yeah um, yeah yeah I think it's it's an exciting time but the reality is that it's we're at the bottom of quite a high mountain I think yeah uh, for sure for sure um but you know again it's it's books like yours that I really do think and and I think art um almost in many ways is a is a space that can do more um I think so too I think yeah. art is a formula you know, you can make policy <laughs> that doesn't really change how people feel or where their prejudices sit, their unconscious perhaps prejudices, the things they factors they may not have thought about before. Whereas, but you can listen to something like small talk, you know, with all the sensory processing mm. being overwhelming for me as a speaker, and that's a, va- a veil lifted. You know, that's oh, look into that world and that person's space, and and so compassion is immediately generated, I think, by art which is the great beauty of art, I think, um, over policy. Yeah, totally agree. So can I get you to just read one more, um, maybe how to have an artistic, an autistic friend, uh, an artistic, autistic friend? Yes. <laughs> On 79. And the autistic people are also autistic Yes, people. that's right. So uh, this is one of the books, uh, one of the poems that closes the book. How to have an autistic friend. See that my scales flash guilt, the prowess, gift. Acknowledge the lack in me, how baffling the lacunae. Invite me, fit the schedule to me. If I prefer calling, call. If I prefer texting, text. If I can't answer, no, I can't answer. If I forget, remind. Remind anyway. When I can't follow through, be kind. Remember the iceberg balancing under this peak, how intensely I'm thrashing underwater. See what can't be seen like city stars. Give me rest and more rest, time and more time. Sweep the path leading towards my success. Listen to what I say I can do, to anything I say. Shield me from trauma. Laugh and lighten me. Welcome me when I am present. Believe in my verity that if I could have, I would have, and that I wanted and want to move closer, though quandary travels with me wherever I go, though it's here now in the room. And know that in my crenellated mangroves, my guarded leaves, my exoskeletal calm, this seahorse soul is lit with love. 
for you. Hmm. Perfect place to finish off. <laughs> thank you so much. It's, uh, we're, we're out of time, unfortunately, but thank you so much for chatting to me today, Esther. And uh, that is uh, She Doesn't Seem Autistic by Esther Ottaway, uh, who we've been talking with. And um, I will put all the links in the show notes. So thank you and bye for now. Thank you so much.